Well, good morning. My name is Ben. I have the privilege of being uh, the vicar, the pastor in training, and also the student director here. Uh, and I'm glad that you're joining us this morning. This is our fourth week in this series called Miraculous, where we've been digging into and diving into the miracles of Jesus. Not all the miracles, but some of the miracles that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry here, into seeing what they, what they mean for us today. So we'll be looking this week, our final week here, at another miracle that Jesus performed and, and what we can learn from the miracles that he has performed. And we have this focus verse. It helps us kind of center us as we're going through and we're looking at all of Jesus' miracles. It comes from John 20, and it reminds us this. It said, Now Jesus did many other signs, many other miracles, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. There's more miracles that Jesus did that, that are recorded in the Bible. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the point. That's a great thing for us to be reminded of yet again as we see God performing miracles again and again throughout Scripture. That the point isn't just the miracle itself that's taking place, but the person behind the miracle and what he's ultimately done for all of us. And so today again, we're going to look at another miracle, and the point remains the same that Jesus is pointing them back to himself, back to the cross, and how what he had accomplished there. And today we actually see a very interesting character in our story. A character unlike, I think, almost any other that, that comes to Jesus for a miracle. You see, he's a pretty well-to-do guy, and um, he came to Jesus humbly. He came to Jesus in a way that was really, really unexpected. A guy that was kind of the upper echelon, upper class, and you know, when I think about the position that this guy held, it makes me think about this question. This question that we ask in this season in particular is, what are you going to be when you grow up? You see, it's in May, right, that seniors are going off, or just yesterday we had confirmation students come forward and affirm their faith, and it's in moments here in the spring that feels like a season of change where you look ahead, and you might ask this question. What are you going to be when you grow up? So for you this morning, what are you going to be when you grow up? You could be 40, 50, 60, I don't care. You still might not know what you're going to be when you grow up. And I know I've ran into some of those folks that they could be 20 years into a career and go, I have no idea what I want to be when I grow up. Um, but this is a common question in my household. You see, I'm on the other side of parenting right now with three young boys at home, the oldest of which uh, has wanted to be a few different things. He wanted to be uh, a farmer. He wanted to be a baker. I was all for that. I could help with quality control. Uh, <laughs> but as of late, we had the same exact question right around the dinner table. We were talking about what he wants to be with when he grows up. And I'll be honest, I can't remember what his response was because all of a sudden I was struck that I was asking him the wrong question. Because as a parent, I don't care. Within a very wide range of occupations, vocations that any of my children could have, I really don't care. If it's pleasing to God, it's pleasing to me. What I do care about is not what you do when you grow up, or what are you going to be when you grow up, but I care about this. I care how. How are you going to be when you grow up? And so we actually talked about that. Me and my father, we talked about how are you going to be? So if you want to be a baker, are you going to be one that's loving? Are you going to be compassionate? Are you going to do your job well? Are you going to be faithful? Are you going to have a family? What are you going to be like as a person, more so than the what you're going to do? But I believe in our society, it's really easy to get caught up in that what. Because we identify with it. Hi, my name is Ben, and I do what? Right? I'm the vicar. I'm this. And you probably do the same thing in your life. I'm 
so-and-so, and I do this. But you really don't know someone just by what they do, but you really know someone by how they do it, don't you? If you get a little bit closer to them, you can see it's not just about the job that you hold, but how do you actually carry it out. Well, today's character is a guy who actually holds kind of an interesting job, and he does it really well. And Jesus' response to him is astounding. So if you would, you can uh, go ahead and grab a Bible. If you're here, uh, the Bibles that we have for you, that's going to be found in uh, Luke chapter 7. It's going to be on page 863. Uh, For those that are joining us online, I encourage you as well to follow along in the Bible. Uh, And we'll also, of course, we'll have the text up on the screen. If you're a guest here this morning, that Bible that is in front of you, that's your Bible to take home, we would love for you to have that. That is our gift to you. And so here in this miracle, uh, Jesus had just finished doing his longest teaching recorded in Scripture. This miracle we're going to look at, it's recorded in two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. We're going to primarily focus on Luke today. But in Matthew, we know that Jesus just finished teaching the Sermon on the Mount. Three whole chapters within Scripture of Jesus doing teaching, and then he performs a few miracles. This is the second of which. And so it says, After he finished the teachings and sayings of the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Here's our first character coming on the scene, a centurion. To give you a little bit of context here, so a centurion is a Roman soldier, but he's not just any soldier. A centurion is a captain. Essentially, if you looked at our military terms, he oversees at least 80, up to 100, maybe, maybe possibly more, depends on uh, how they had it broken down within that region. But there in Capernaum, the centurion, he's upper class. He's a military man. He's a disciplined guy. He has received this position not just because it was handed to him, but he's been proven in battle or through discipline. He has earned this position. He is a man of authority. He is a man that is wealthier than those around him. And we know this. He not only oversees soldiers, but he has at least one servant, if not more. And this servant in particular is sick. And this centurion cares either just about his servant or the fact that he might be losing a servant. It was highly valued by this centurion. And then we see this. Verse 3. The centurion heard about Jesus. He sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. This is key. He heard about Jesus. Today we're going to see that there's real power in hearing. He had heard about Jesus. We don't know exactly what that meant. Jesus had performed miracles at this point. He had done teaching. Surely the centurion knew within that region that there was like these droves of people going to Jesus, hearing his teaching, heard about these miracles that have taken place. And he thinks, okay, so there's this Jewish rabbi. I'm going to reach out to him. He's been performing miracles, and so I'm going to have him come to me. I'm going to have him come heal my servant. But what's interesting to me about this, it's a totally unexpected request. There is a massive dividing line between the Roman soldiers and the Jewish citizens. This is an occupying government. This Roman centurion is a Gentile that has nothing to do with the Jewish faith. He is not Jewish. Yet he's reaching out to a Jewish rabbi. And, 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 and he is seen as the enemy. Yet he's reaching out to him saying, okay, I think that you're the guy. And I'm not reaching out just for me. I'm reaching out for my servant. 
It's really unexpected, unusual request that he's making. And he's also not going himself. He's not commanding Jesus to come to him. He is a man of authority. He could have just told a few soldiers, go round up that miracle-working rabbi guy, bring him here so he can heal my servant. No, no, he sends some Jewish elders, which is actually a sign of respect. He's saying, I'm not going to send Gentiles to you. I'm not going to send my soldiers. I'm not going to use a show of force to bring you here. I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you with Jewish elders who know you and you know them that you would come to me. So the Jewish elders, they approached Jesus, and when they come to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy. The centurion is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. Now we don't just see the what. He's not just a centurion, but we see how he's doing his job. He's doing his job well. He's loving that nation. He's loving the people, even though he's an occupying Roman soldier there in that region, these elders are saying, he loves us. He's showing kindness to us. In fact, actually, he built our church. He built our synagogue. And what I find so interesting is that they use these words. He is worthy. Because they would have been the experts at what's worthy and what's unworthy. The Jewish elders would have been experts at what's clean or unclean, what's righteous or unrighteous. And they're looking at this Gentile centurion and saying, he's not Jewish, but you know what? He's worthy. Look at the good stuff that he's doing for us. He's a good guy. Can you just hear it? Can you hear yourself say it? Talking about family or friends or a coworker. They're a good guy. They're a good person. That's because we are not unlike those Jewish elders, we like to do this. We like to measure things. We like to see what's worthy, what's up to snuff, what's good enough. Not that long ago, we were at a water park, and the same uh, oldest son of mine goes and sees this big water slide, which I was surprised he was even interested in, and he goes up to one of these just about an inch or two short. So you know what he did? (laughs) It's not unlike what we do. The Jewish elders have their yardstick of holiness and they're holding it up against the centurion and go, look at the stuff that he's done. He's kind, he's loving, he built the synagogue. Like, look at his actions. This is how he's living his life as a centurion and it's good. He's doing a good job. And you and I, we do the exact same thing. We like to hold up measuring sticks up to other people and sometimes even ourselves and go, am I doing good? Am I good enough? Are you going to be a good person? Well, the problem is is that's not the measuring stick that God uses. And if you don't believe that that's true of yourself, I mean, just think about it. Think about how you compare and contrast yourself against your neighbors. They get a new car. They do something a little bit different. Do you feel like you've been depleted in some way? Or try this. This is an even better test. If something that you highly value in your life, be it your job, your home, even a family member is taken from you, how upset do you get? And not upset that the thing is taken, but upset that it maybe tweaked your identity. Now my worth isn't the same. I don't have the same prestige. Don't have the same power. The bank account doesn't look quite as big. The decibel place has moved a couple times. Uh Uh-oh. Maybe I'm not worthy enough anymore. The Jewish elders are looking at this and going, this guy's worthy. Look, he's a great guy. He's doing good stuff. He has this authority and position. 
Yet before God, if any of us stand, there's only one thing that makes us worthy. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says this. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he, re- uh, that he rewards those who seek him earnestly. There is nothing that you or I could do, could say, could be in this side of eternity. There's nothing that we could do to measure up. There's no stack of things that we could put under ourselves, our good works, our position, our family, whatever, that we could stand on to be just tall enough to reach the holiness, to reach the standard that God has set. And not only that, but then there's all the sin in our life too, isn't there? And each time you add a sin, you're taking away a little bit more and you're not just measuring up. It's impossible. But these Jewish elders, they don't get it. They're coming to Jesus with the old playbook. They're saying, okay, he's doing good, so he should get good. He wants this for someone else that's not himself. He's a good person. You should do this. What I find interesting here is in this moment that Jesus actually doesn't correct or rebuke them. Jesus follows them. Jesus went with them, it says in uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 6, it says that when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, another delegation, not, not him himself, not the Jewish elders, but friends this time, and he said to, the, to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. The centurion wants this for his servant. He wants this healing for his servant, and he believes that Jesus is the guy that can do it. But the centurion had every single reason to be able to puff himself up and go, I'm a centurion. People listen to me when I speak. I have a hundred people, anyone at my beck and call to do anything that I say, yet of this Jewish rabbi, I am not even worthy to have him cross the threshold of my house. Not worthy. Instead of puffing himself, instead of getting on his titty toes, He's actually coming through his friends to Jesus on his knees and saying, I'm not worthy. It's another unexpected thing. It is unexpected to see that type of humility. There are so many things that could have tripped up that centurion that he could have looked to himself, looked to his position, looked to his own power. But instead, he actually comes to Jesus with a great sense of humility. In verse 7 and 8, we hear this. It says, therefore, I did not presume to come to you. I'm not worthy to have you come to Jesus. I didn't presume I could even come and talk to you. But do this. But say the word. Say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does this. It's a miraculous statement of faith from the centurion. Not a Jewish believer looking at a Jewish rabbi and going, I believe that you could simply just say the word and my servant would be healed. You don't even have to be inside my house. You don't have to lay a hand on him. You don't have to even look upon him. All you have to do is say the word. And what you have to know is up until this point in Scripture, there is no long-distance healing that Jesus has done. There's not some story that the centurion had heard about that goes, oh, this guy can just say things and they happen. But his whole worldview, his whole understanding of how things work was based off of his position. And what he understood was that there is a chain of command and that there is authority and his world is this. When I say something, somebody does it. 
And it's not because I said it. It's because when he says come or go or do, the soldier might hear his voice, but it's Caesar's authority that they're listening to. And so when he looks at Jesus and sees that he's casting out demons and healing people and performing all these miracles, he recognizes that this man has some type of authority that's not earthly, that's spiritual, and that he had been set in that authority. And so that when he speaks, he's speaking with an authority that is far beyond anything that that centurion could comprehend. It's an unexpected faith that we see from the centurion. How in the world did this guy have such a deep faith that goes, I'm not even worthy to have you come in, but I believe, I believe that if you just said it, he would be healed. And I also believe that you're good enough to do it. Because if you had an enemy that had that type of a power and authority, and you approached him and said, hey, could you make my servant well? If Jesus wasn't not only powerful, but if he wasn't good, well, then Jesus could have ended that servant's life, couldn't he? He could have ended the centurion's life, but the centurion had faith that Jesus was not only powerful, but he was good. And then when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. There are two times recorded in the scripture that this term is you, marveled marveled that he was astonished. Jesus was surprised about something. This one time, he's surprised at this Gentile centurion's faith. The other time that he marveled was at his own people's unbelief. And actually, every time that we see Jesus impressed by anything at all, in his human interactions, the things that impress Jesus our faith and humility. Which, for whatever reason, this centurion had in spades. He understood how to approach humbly. He understood how to approach someone who had an authority that he didn't have. And he had a confidence and a faith that truly made no sense. How did he have such a faith? That no one in Israel, no one that was supposed to believe, that no one that was supposed to understand who Jesus was and what he had come to do, but this Gentile had this faith. And I'll spoil it for you right now. Jesus heals a guy. <laughs> that's the miracle that takes place. But there's another miracle that's happening here. And there's a teaching moment that Jesus grabs hold of. Because like I mentioned before, we're reading from Luke. Luke was an author to the Gentiles. Matthew was an author to the Jews. So when we look at this exact same account in the book of Matthew, we actually see that Jesus said this as well. He not only marveled at it, but he says this. He says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The centurion asked for a servant to be healed. And then he gets this declaration of his own salvation from Jesus. And he has this teaching moment in front of all these Jewish followers and the disciples of Jesus saying, guess what? You believe it's about heritage. You believe it's about bloodline. You believe it's about being from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
But guess what? Those from east and west, those from all the corners of the world that trust in me and have faith, like this centurion has faith, guess what? They're going to be in heaven with me and with all the patriarchs of the Old Testament. But that's not the only good news. There's some bad news that comes along with that. Because, see, you're misunderstanding your measuring stick of being holy and doing things right and being from the right group. He says this, he says, while the sons of the kingdom, that is, those that are Jewish believers at that time, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is just setting everybody straight here, going, hey, okay, so you thought it was about his worthiness. You thought that it was about him being good enough. His position, him doing things right, not just what he did, but how he did it. He's a good guy. Well, guess what? I'm not marveling at that. I'm marveling at his faith, and because of his faith, he's going to be with me in eternity. But if you don't have that very same faith that the centurion has, well, guess what? There's one of two places you're going to go, and it's not going to be with me. That hell is a very real place. And that at the end of time, that when you are going to be going one of those two places, it's not going to be based off of works. It's not going to be based off of position. It's not based off power or prestige. It's based off of one thing and one thing only. It's faith in Jesus Christ. And so here we see at the very end, he goes, and those that had seen, they, they, they returned to the house and they found the servant well. This was Jesus' unexpected response. An unexpected response coming from Jesus saying, yes, I'm going to heal your servant. That's fine. That's easy. I, yep, he totally gets it. I can just say the word. I don't have to cross the threshold of your house. I can heal him and I'm going to heal him. But that salvation came to that centurion's house and that a teachable moment took place for all those disciples. That includes all of us. Because I have to imagine the majority of us that are here in person watching online do not have Jewish heritage. Some may. But the good news for us as Gentiles, those that are outside that Jewish heritage, is that the good news is good for us as well. That all we have to do is simply have faith. You see it here in Galatians 2.19, it becomes so clear. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That all your good works and all your bad works are nailed to the cross with Jesus. That was the true measuring stick and that now, now the life that you and I live is not our own life. And that if we want to do anything that pleases God, if you want to approach God and make God happy, it's not about you mustering yourself up to be able to do something good enough, say something right enough, be good enough for God. It is simply placing your faith in him, which is also a gift from God. It's not even something that we can even take hold of. It's something that we simply receive, as you saw this morning, through the waters of baptism. And it's through those waters and it's through that faith that's instilled in us that continues to grow and grow as God grows it. And that he was able to grow it in a centurion Gentile and marvel at it, that he's calling you and I to do the same thing. And it's not about the what it's not about the how, it's about the who. Who you place your faith in. Because you see here that we live faith by faith in the Son of God who did what? He died for you. How did he do it? With love. And so now we don't ask ourselves these questions. It's good to think about what you're going to do one day. But what can you do today? What can you do today to make God smile? What can you do to please him? It's the wrong question. 
how can you do today? Like, how can I be? How should I go about living out my life? It's also the wrong question. It's not the what. It's not the how. It's the who. Because here's the measuring stick. If we want to just, like, lay, lay everything out, like, all the cards on the table, table. It's not about position, power, prestige. It's not about wealth. It's not about how good you are. Here's the measuring stick. Here's holiness. Here's the standard that God has is the cross. And I don't believe that you or I, we would even comprehend what Jesus had to do to crawl up on that cross and have nails go through his hands and his feet and to die for you and I. Because it was not only a measuring stick of God's holiness, what true holiness looks like, but it's also the measuring stick that we now get to look upon and it measures how much God has loved you and I. It is simply a gift to receive. And so as we go forward and as we look, we go, I don't need to concern myself with what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. I first need to focus on who. Who I place my trust in, who am I doing this for, and then it'll inform the other questions. You see, this cross is actually a memorial. Outside of the uh, subdivision that I lived in in Texas, this is, a, this is a massive cross. It's not photoshopped. A mother had lost her 25-year-old son, tragically. And as she was mourning, she was traveling around the U.S., and within three days, she saw three of these crosses around the United States, three days in a row. And she felt moved by the Holy Spirit to go, I want this same beacon of hope for my community that they can look up when they're driving on the highways, that they can see. Here's the measuring stick not of just God's holiness, but God's love for them. Because it's in the end, it's in the end that it's coming for all of us in this flickering life, that people will ask the question, what did they do? How did they do it? What were they like? It actually makes me think about, it was a number of years ago, that my wife and I at the time, we were living in St. Louis, but we had traveled back because unfortunately, my father-in-law's mother had passed. And there at the wake for his mom's funeral, my mother-in-law gets a phone call because her father was in the hospital. And he was, he was going to pass. So we left the funeral for one grandparent of my wife to go to the bedside of the other and to watch this man, very godly, loving man, take his last breath and to be there in that moment. And we extended our, our time here in Michigan at that time so that we could attend the other funeral. What was astounding to me as we were pouring over photos and memories and looking at all of this man's life, I was struck by this question. I've been around this family for a good number of years. And Stephanie, I have no idea what your grandfather did for a living. And even more astounding than my question was her response. She didn't know either. But what she did know was how loving, how gracious, how kind, how compassionate he was. And it wasn't just because he was trying to conjure those things up in himself. But he had the who. He had the who right, and he had it dead center that he was living his life for Jesus and that, that there was no righteousness of his own but fully in Christ. 
that everything that flowed out of that confidence that he had, that he was able to live his life by faith, that those that were celebrating his life weren't gathered around thinking about all the good things that he did at work and all the kindness and love that he showed, but everyone had confidence, a firm foundation that that loved one had stood upon, that we go, it wasn't based off of anything we did, but he's in eternity now because he lived each and every day by faith, by that gift of faith that was given to him that he clung to tightly. It's my prayer for myself, for my family, and for you this morning to, to recenter ourselves. To not busy ourselves with what do we need to be doing, how do we need to be doing it, how do we need to be a little bit better, but focus again on who. Who has done it all for you? Who has done the thing that you could never have done for yourself? And that you can center back on that faith, live by that faith day by day, remembering the goodness of the one who loved you enough to die for you. And that whatever will flow from that, be it occupation or how you carry yourself, will be a reflection of the confidence that you have to stand firmly in the faith that he's instilled in you, the author who started that faith, and the perfecter who will finish that faith. Amen? Amen? Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. Yet again to see another miracle in your word and how Jesus works. That he works and he addresses the issues that are at hand, but he goes so much further beyond that. To not simply offer healing and help. God, but he's come to be a savior and redeemer. God, thank you for the gift of faith. Let us, let us receive it with open hands and let us move forward from this place today to cling to that faith tightly so that as we go about our lives that they might be pleasing to you, God. And when we stumble and when we fall, God, that we come back to the cross with humility but also with trust and faith that you'll forgive us every time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.